Guys, welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, as ever, remember that all the information you're about to hear is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any illnesses or diseases. Please make sure to consult your healthcare practitioner before implementing any of the things we may discuss in this podcast. Speaking of education, if you're an exercise professional, coach or anyone working within the realms of health and fitness, when you're done listening here, make sure to head on over and check out our education portal at www themusclementors.co.uk if you like us and truly care about the well-being of your clients about getting access to the best and most up-to-date information in the areas of exercise mechanics hypertrophy sleep improving your online coaching services and much much more then be sure to join up you'll gain access to endless hours of content focused around everything you need to become a truly elite coach and get your clients in the best physical shape possible this is all in the form of video lectures weekly live education sessions and study groups you also get early access to our podcast and access to any exclusive Q&A segments we do with our guests. The content never stops on the portal. It's not a one-off course. It's an ever-evolving learning platform designed to give you the best information possible in this area. Head on over to our website and become part of our epic community, full to the brim of other professionals who, like yourself, are focused on providing the best health and physique-related results for their clients. Join us and them and gain the resources, support and accountability you need to become the elite of the health and fitness industry. For now, though, grab yourself a pen and paper and enjoy the show. Okay, welcome back, guys, um, to the Muscle Mentors podcast. Um, we are back with another Q&A um, slash Muscle Mentors perspective. Um, and uh, We've got the same crew as last week plus Jimbo. Um, so for those listening and can't see on youtube that's paul ross myself and james um and james's dog in the background and probably grace in the background of ross's and paul's uh the skeleton yeah, i've got paul's, a skeleton that makes me sound super cool paul's mangled roommate in the back of i'm not lonely <laughs> at all guys <laughs> well, me and paul both have skeletons in the back so <laughs> anyway mine just, mine just got a hat um but anyway so yeah, how's everyone doing? Good. Very well. Yeah, yeah very well. Yeah, let's, let's spend the first half an hour just catching up. You know, how's the week been? Terribly, I ran out of actual caffeinated coffee yesterday. I have not much. So this has to be decaf throughout the day. And it's... I only saw the top of that and I thought that was a pint of Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw it's like the top of this like dark thing with the yeah, that would have been bold. Um, I have absolutely no idea if you're worried about that. I have no idea. What would be strange about your Guinness? <laughs> anyway. I'd probably uh, do better on Guinness at this time than caffeine. Caffeine now I wouldn't sleep at all. That's <laughs> yeah, that's a good point to be fair. Um anyway, we'll go with question one. Um and we're marking this out of 10. Uh, we're each going to give an answer. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so we had a question from a incredibly named individual that I've only just clocked called Leroy Vanderbosch. That That's is, a great name. It's great. <laughs> I'm going to give um, him a nine on his name alone. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. He's already scored 10. Um, why is the line of force on an RDL not down but up? Because of the floor essentially so i always i think the best 
Well, I think the best way of imagining this one is if you imagine, let's say you were holding a barbell to do an RDL and you jumped out of a plane <laughs> and you were trying to do an RDL in the air as you were falling. <laughs> you wouldn't really be able to do one. You certainly wouldn't experience a torque around the hip because you're falling. So there's, no th- there's nothing pushing back up at you for you to work around. So it's not until you hit the floor. And ideally, I recommend not jumping out of a plane with a barbell in order to perform your RDL. Or let's assume you <laughs> or, or don't jump off a ledge either that might yeah. yeah i'm surprised someone hasn't started like recommending that like a drop jump rdl or some bollocks bet someone has somewhere i bet but, someone has somewhere yeah, yeah probably have. but think about a jump squat it's not until you yeah. hit the floor that that thing becomes a challenge right that bit where you're kind of going oh this is fine oh shit and you yeah it's, the falling bit is great until the floor but there's the same thing with the rdl it is when we hit the floor it's the floor pushing up at us through the foot that starts trying to drive that leg up into hip flexion that gives us something to work around we could if we fix because we can actually think of this in two regards we've got the floor pushing up through the legs trying to push us into hip flexion we could also think of it though and take the segment above the hip with a bar attached to it is also itself provided the other part is fixed trying to work its way down to the floor so we could if we were looking at something like a 45 degree hip extension we might draw the line straight down because we've got this fixed position on the one side when it comes to doing the rdl or the back squat really we start with well without the floor pushing up at us first nothing else really matters on that so the simple reason it's the ground reaction force is really what we're dealing with. And that barbell becomes a segment of us or a part of us as we go through the move. Anything to add? Yeah, yeah. No, just that. It's the ability on that 45 degree back extension for the support on your hip or just below your hip on the top of your quads to push up that then creates that segment to the upper body. So then that line from the barbell can come down. Yeah. Um, without that support there, in a sense, the 45 degree back extension would be pointless, would fall over. You just face plants super hard. <laughs> um, and it's the same thing, like if anyone's not aware, whether it's a, like as Paul mentioned, a barbell back squat, but then even think of it like a glute bridge with the bar on your hips. We're not looking at that bar coming down to the floor. We're looking at our points of contact, whether it's our shoulders on the bench, whether that's feet on the floor. And then we're trying to visualize a line that's coming up from there, yeah. uh, from both. And then that will create a moment arm to the hip, a moment arm to the knee potentially as well. Um, from two sources, from the feet and from the shoulders. Yeah, yeah. That one I find is often easier to see once people can yeah. draw it out. Like the, the squat and RDL. Oh, Luke's Luke's taking a drawing. <laughs> the, um, the, well, I was Useful say, on a podcast, by the way. Yeah, I know. Well, I was say, we're on YouTube as well. People give us the views. Get on there. Yeah. Uh, the um, but the um, if you're just listening. All he's done is draw dicks. But this will be quite an interesting way because with the RDL, it does actually make, in my opinion, more sense to look at it with the force coming down from the bar, which which may confuse people based on what you, you Paul just said. Because, <laughs> because we usually look at an RDL in terms of like we're drawing the, the line, like the challenge, like we're trying to identify the challenge to the hip. In a squat, it's much easier to look at the combined mass of the body and the bar pushing into the floor and coming up. In an RDL, like we, it is, it's, I went through this with a client recently that we can look at the body in like combined segments or individual segments. And with this RDL here, which you're only going to benefit from seeing on the, if you watch this on YouTube, we basically want to look at the effect the bar's having on that segment alone being our torso in which case we would draw like the line of force down 
and then figure out like if we drew that imagine that went up oh shit that's terribly wrong um it's just quite hard to draw when you're at an angle like this but if we draw that going that force going up we could then identify at the moment um and one of the reasons it might be worth doing that because we can think one thing we what do we know when we look at this well we know that the combined center of mass of whoever this guy is holding the barbell and them has to still be over their foot, right? That has to be over the base of support. So if we were to just draw that, we might end up with quite a small looking torque. But if we take this other concept with it, we might end up with a, a greater torque than yeah. if we just took the other way around. And that's where it depends on the exercise. So you can, like all the stuff that they just said where it was, you know, you, you can equally consider this movement with the combined mass of like, where this guy could weigh a hundred kilos and be lifting a hundred kilo bar. And therefore, it's like 200 kilos collectively all pushing into the contact point that he has floor. But we could individually just say, okay, what is the challenge that applying this barbell to that seg, that upper body segment having on that, like what the challenge is? is it and then, yeah, then we could even go, okay, so the lower limb segment has a moment of a smaller one, which is from the foot up. And we could then take a upper segment, which has a greater moment from that. But that would be getting complex. Yeah, I think, but in a in a similar way to the squat, though, that as that load gets considerable and a higher percentage relative to the individual's body weight, if anyone was watching Luke's diagram there, that wouldn't be possible if there's 180 kilos on the bar yeah. and there's an 80 kilo person or 100 kilo person doing that because they'd fall forward. So they're always going to have to get to a point where that bum's going to have to shift back uh, relative to the load on there, so their centre of mass can obviously always stay over the base of the support. Yeah. And, that, and that's what we see like the this you know we, we could draw another version where this guy's bum is sticking a little bit further back and he's maybe had to bend his knees a bit and he's brought that bar a little bit closer to prevent himself from falling over so that question of why is it why is the rdl drawn down but not up like it can be either just depends on how you want to analyze the movement um, but hopefully that helps with a lot of stuff it's worth thinking floor up Anyway, you've got to, okay, where am I coming into contact with something that's stopping gravity, just accelerating me to the center of the earth? Yeah, and like, yeah, like this thing, like that analysis that I just did where we look at that upper body segment, we can't do that without being in contact with the floor. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Sweet. Hopefully that answered all that. And we'll, uh, we, yeah, we can we explore that stuff more on the portal and stuff. So, plug. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but um, cool. Next question. What's next, Luke? Um, let me just get my notes up because I just drew all over them. It's the downside having used that to draw. <laughs> um, yeah, so the question itself was, I wrote down a little uh, little snippet there. The question itself was, what could be causing a shutout of power in one arm when performing pushing movements? Lack of an arm. You only got one arm, probably. Yeah. <laughs> okay, lack of humans. Next question. Yeah. So that was that was from that was from Richie, which I believe I, I believe you know. Um, I do know Richie back home. Yeah. Um, and you, I think you you said that he potentially has some issue in his shoulder. Yeah, I had a night chat with him before, and just from talking to him about his issues, his kind of his tissues around the shoulder probably aren't doing the things that they want to do, and that obviously leads you on to the point where, like, if those guys aren't acting to sometimes called concavity compression, the way it kind of provides that compression around the joint. Like if it's not doing that, like because when you're doing a press, the same movements that kind of control these, the same tissues that kind of control these movements like external internal rotation, 
they're the same muscles that are stopping your body doing that when you're handling heavy loads. So you need to kind of understand that if you're not able to get those guys doing what they're supposed to do and they're not providing that compression at the joint, your nervous system is going to go, hey, there's something going on here. I'm not going to let you do that because you're going to rip your bone off. So like it's, <laughs> I think what people need is like pull it back, potentially go and train those tissues directly. But again, you boys might have a little bit of a different insight in my world. Yeah, I think you're wrong. <laughs> As a matter of principle, I just assume Ross is wrong and takes the, <laughs> the opposite stance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, kidding, no. James, you got any thoughts, mate? I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna... Yeah, I know. I'm wondering whether he's getting any vision ways, but I, I mean, we've done this on the port. Of, like, I think in the pushing, uh, like the body weight pushing stuff we did, Jimbo, you kind of go through it. But for those that have an, an idea of like how those muscles, I love how he doesn't have any arms anymore. But if there was an arm coming out here, we'd have like those tissues on the rotator cuff, the lats, the pecs to a degree, but like tissues of the delts and stuff, kind of all working to keep the humerus pulled pulled into the glenoid um, as we do that movement so that the tissues that are trying to pull the humerus forward aren't obviously going to pull that guy out of the socket. And so if someone was, like Ross just said, dealing with a, a uh, you know those tissues responsible for compressing that joint, holding it together, if they were weaker, your nervous system may respond by going, well, I'm not going to give you as much force on that side versus the other side where there's like that, joint is in a much more kind of secure place it's uh, one of those ones where you'd want some more investigation into yeah. what positions is this person struggling to produce force in is it consistently on all pressing kind of stuff is it at certain angles of internal or external rotation or flexion or extension and just start to explore okay where and what seems to be going on there and then coming up with a strategy sensibly based from that to be like okay what might help this and then playing around, but it's a difficult one to analyze online. Yeah. Is this where we need the client in front yeah. of us to go through it. And if he wants a quick fix or something like that, is there a shoulder position that feels better? So forget about trying to load the muscle in a certain way. Can he find a joint position that feels comfortable? Can he find a joint position that's got the most available range um, and then not try and work to that full range, but then stay within a point that maybe does feel efficient. So don't think, Oh yeah, this, shoulder position is optimal for chest development now forget about that muscles come later is there a joint position that sits well that he's got huge amount of internal external rotation huge amount of flexion extension available that he can stay comfortably in the mid-range try and train there does he still get that same down regulation okay if he does then obviously alongside that go work and where i work on other things and try and investigate more but if you still want to or still feel you can perform pressing movement try and find the nicest joint position why are you doing that investigation? And it, it can be, yeah, I mean, it can be tricky because there, there's two, like we have a simple explanation, which is kind of the thing we're going through. And this is just speculation at this point. Um, like I say, James is, we can we can email over the, uh, James's PT prices. This guy can get in touch. And <laughs> uh, but, the, um, but no, like this explanation of like, Okay, it could be a muscular weakness. That's probably the simple one, which is probably the best place to start, like the interventions James just mentioned. And if you do start going and training those tissues in all these different positions that you can put your arm in, and again, I'm demonstrating this on YouTube, so you can you can watch it there. Um, you, you're probably best served using very like minimal load um, because of the size of those muscles and how close they are to the axis like if you start using big loads try, you know trying to externally rotate a 20 kilo dumbbell because you think that will get it done the job done quicker your nervous system is just going to go 
well, I'll just recruit the bigger guys and they might not be the issue. So if you want to access the little guys, use a little bit less weight. Um, and yeah, and play around with that stuff. And that like, there's more complicated explanations we don't need to get into, but try I mean, to give some small examples. So I broke my collarbone last year and I now have a different range of movement and internal and external rotation on my right side, the side that I snapped it, than the left side. And that affects the positions I would press uh, from whilst, whilst going through that. Pulls like this now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I have I have less ability to get into steeper inclines or declines on the right side as a result. So just knowing that and going, okay, well, I need to adjust the angles that I press through. It's a pretty simple fix. Don't be stubborn. Don't be a stubborn person who says no overhead pressing looks really cool. So now I should definitely overhead. I was one of those people where I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go overhead press. And I've come to the conclusion, I'm probably never gonna overhead press again. I'm absolutely it serves very little benefit when you actually think about what's going on around the shoulder and what you can do instead of having the overhead press for any kind of desired outcome. There's better things to do. So if you do find yourself kind of struggling to do things that are overhead, potentially even if you want to be really stupid behind the neck, um, we'll just avoid those guys completely. Find something that's comfortable because most of the time, finding out what you can do is probably going to tell you more about what you can't do than trying to do what you already know you can't do. You know, so just give yourself an opportunity to actually be safe and train. Sweet. Which, I mean, we may as well jump into the other chest-related questions there because we kind of, there's no point of getting away from that coming back. The first one was, which is, and this, these can all flow. I mean, we can, I can sh- read them both out. We can cover them as we go because they're interrelated. Um, small rib cage exercise modifications to improve chest dev. <laughs> Luke, um, when reading this earlier, got really confused what dev was short for. I thought he was, I thought he was calling me dev. I thought he was like small rib cage, like, modification to improve chest dev development, mate. Um, it's, not, it's not complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then, um, opinion on high incline versus 20 to 45 degree incline for clavicular chest. I think the, the first thought I always have if someone's got a, a small rib cage and, and they're not the broadest dude is understanding that if you try and go really low in your presses and stuff, you're going to get into a pretty compromised position where your chest isn't very good at producing rotation. So discovering what this thing we call active ranges for the chest is going to be a big one for these people in a way that if you're a big barrel chested dude with T-Rex length forearms, you're never going to notice that this is even a thing. I enjoyed the fact Luke decided to check out his own forearm at that point. (laughs) It's like, how long are you? But uh, if once we get that arm way back behind the body with a with an, a, a, a short or a, a thin kind of rib cage, the force angle for the pec decreases rapidly. And actually, most of the pec's force wants to shear the arm out the front of that glenoid once we get into that position. It doesn't get all that effective for producing kind of chest stuff. So if you're that person, that idea that oh, the bar or the dumbbell has to go all the way to the chest, let's throw that out almost immediately is one of the first things I start thinking. I'd say for, for me, two points just to add on that is one, uh, obviously range you're speaking about, the two, is there anything they can do with breathing mechanics? Is there anything they can do with position through the scapula, throat thoracic to try and get more of a um, sternum angle, to get more of that angle that the barreled type person or the person with a bigger chest would have? So are they thinking about what they're doing during the rep with the breath? Um, are they trying to do anything to try and extend the scapula or sorry, extend the thoracic and maybe trying to hold a bit more retractive position to the scapula? So, um, and what if they haven't got a conscious thought of that, then them too could make it even worse for them. Yeah, yeah, and like we we see that exaggerated massively in powerlifters for people that want to reference. So they'll go into like a ridiculous amount of extension through the spine 
to kind of simulate that big thick rib cage coming off the bench. Um, and then they'll also, you know, be heavily bracing. So they'll take in a massive breath and, and that won't change for the time they do. Obviously they're only doing one rep, so that's harder to do across the set, but those, that combination of like making sure that as they breathe, they're not changing, like collapsing their kind of chest and rib cage too much every time, which is, something you'd probably see at the end of a hard set more than anything else. But and if you guys like haven't thought of this before, but if you imagine that rib cage expands and gets bigger into extension when you take a big deep breath in and then collapses kind of down. So if you just keep that in mind, that's going a bit like an accordion mm. that's getting larger as we breathe in, that's going to give us that bigger, broader chest position to press from. So it might be you take a big deep breath and then shallow breathe <laughs> your way through that thing if necessary. Mm. But like they, they, those sort of things. So like the, I mean, the question itself was small rib cage exercise modifications. You know, there's, and it's same, same with opinion on high incline versus 20 to 20, uh, 20 to 45 degree incline for clavicular chest. If you're trying to stimulate clavicular chest, my opinion um, is you'll be best served going with cables over free weights and things like that because you have the ability to kind of change the direction of that cable to match the fiber direction of the clavicular which in anyone even on someone with a massive rib cage they tend to have a shallower angle than the guys like lower down that are kind of much steeper um they tend to come across a lot more so with using cables and things like that you have more freedom to adjust for that um like set that up according to the individual um and um but like generally speaking if you are going to use free weights going that this there's like a sweet spot and again the rib cage size thickness you know and all this stuff will have a big input on this but as soon as you start going too steep it will generally become a shoulder exercise more than anything else um, and just to add on that as well we we think that going higher on incline is is more upper pec it's not more upper pec generally it's just less lower <laughs> So you can feel that if you take your arm out to about 90 degrees of shoulder flexion and sort of contract your pec, imagine if you're doing a push measurement, you can feel your whole chest tense. Whereas if you come up to what would be an incline, maybe 30, 45 degrees and contract, and imagine you're pushing there. Now, anyone watching can't see my hand, but <laughs> now the, the lower part of your pec is, is going to come out of the movement. So yes, there might be some stuff going on nervous system wise, but if we look in mechanically at what's going on, as we go higher on an incline, it doesn't work the upper chest more. It just brings out the lower part. Mm. It's like the anterior delt is on top of the axis, whatever the angle is. It's just as we get steeper and steeper and steeper, more and more of the pec comes out of it. Mm. We're not getting more anterior delt by going on a high or overhead press. We're just getting less pec. I'd, I'd probably also add in that, in my experience, for dudes with, with small chests, you know, these are people who haven't grown their chest with the classic exercises, the dumbbell and the barbell stuff. These are therefore guys who generally respond well to doing cuffed presses, cuffed flies, that kind of stuff. Where we bring in those cables, we set stuff up as Luke mentioned with a much better path of motion for them and a profile for them. And you're suddenly like, oh, I actually get a, I can feel my chest working rather than just my shoulders burning for the first time. So it tends to be those exercises become more effective for this type of person. Whereas big barrel chested dudes, they'd still benefit from the cuff work, don't get us wrong, but they'll also benefit with just dumbbells and barbells in a way that this narrow chested person won't. Yeah, they've got more, they, they've got a greater exercise pool available to them just because yeah. of how they're built, which is- Bastards. Bastards. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, 
that that kind of covers everything pretty well. And for those that want a, yeah, I mean, we've been through this stuff a lot on the portal um, where you can kind of visualize this stuff. And we kind of go through the anatomy and kind of actually, you know, help you understand what the pec actually is. You know, people kind of make that distinction between upper pec and lower pec. And it's like, it's all one muscle, all works together. Like James just kind of- Like if you look at the, on the older machines, I don't want to say the new ones, but if you look at the angle, if anyone knows of like the Nautilus Nitro, Cybex Eagle, type presses they all work through a similar type of shoulder flexion angle so around 90 to 100 maybe 110 degrees in that angle there of shoulder flexion you're getting pretty much all your pecking mm-hmm. unless you're someone who starts to massively arch unless you're someone with that huge barrel rib cage then yes that's different but for the average person that sort of 90 degrees to 100 degrees of shoulder flexion is getting the majority in so if you want your most bang for your buck like that's the type of position and then just hold a stable base. Don't allow your hips to pull off the seat. Don't allow your lower back to arch up, which was not 99% of the people would do. And then you bias more through the lower. If you actually hold a stable foundation in that 90 to 120 degrees of shoulder flexion in that finished position, you're going to get the most out of it. And you're going to get a good development through the upper chest from holding that stable base rather than what you've, potentially a lot of people done for years is cheap because they want to rub their ego and lift more weight which is entirely the correct way to do it for everyone else yeah. Yeah. it doesn't matter if all you care about is how much weight you lift which would be almost so you can pretty much disregard everything the lab <laughs> more plates more dates that's just a it's just a just a fact uh, oh, that sort of links on to the question luke if you wanted to go on to that about does it <laughs> It does in my head about the uh, RDL spoke deadlift, spoke lengthening uh, or working and moving the length and the load and re- length and range at the start of the program compared to maybe later on. Yeah. So the question was from Scott of, you know, would you always prioritize training the end ranges first? I think by that he means the short and length and ranges. When might the opposite be appropriate? And there's like that. That's a big question that we, we could do a whole bloody podcast on. But, I mean, the obvious as to when it's not appropriate is someone with an issue where you might want to be just generating some control in a mid-range where they're moderately strong or a range where they're not. Yeah, but it's issue. also the thing of like, how are we, are we ever really just biasing one portion of the range? Like even on a lift, oh, for sure. you know, it's like, oh, I may get into the shortened range, but that doesn't mean that that's the, where the challenge is or where the I get into a short range, relatively shortened range, just doing a dumbbell press. Yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> There's no challenge there. Um, yeah, but, a good uh, example of that is the idea that you know, and you'll often have people who will control leg extension first prior to any kind of set that they're doing within a lower session or potentially do like a dumbbell fly or a cuff fly. Mm. And I know partly the idea comes from the idea, you know, that as fatigue builds up, the potential to maybe generate quality contraction in those quote unquote weaker positions could potentially drop off. You know, I think that's where a lot of it kind of stems from. Um, but there's definitely other areas and different means and how is where you may not want to do that just relevant to the individual, you know. Yeah, and, it, and that's also changes where, you know, if someone was saying like, okay, I'll do leg extension first or a leg curl first because I can get the quad shorter with more load through it, fair. But then you could, you should still be able to get, the yeah, if you did that exercise last, provided you didn't try and attempt it with the same weight, maybe, you should, yeah. you know, if you drop the weight appropriately to, to what your like the tissue is capable of dealing with at that point and what you're kind of like to accommodate your levels of fatigue, you should still be able to get the quad pretty damn short. Like the quad, I should say pretty thin. Um, I think I, I interpreted the question the other way when they said end range first, meaning lengthened. Um, 
That's why I interpreted it. Oh, oh right. Uh, so <laughs> going back to my point initially, <laughs> saying about ego, traditionally people go and bench press first, squat first, RDL first, because they can lift more if they put it first. So we've got to get <laughs> rid of our ego when we're looking at program design and program application and think, well, what's appropriate for the individual? It's no advice, James. What if there's hot people in the gym and you're trying to impress them with your lifts? <laughs> but to be fair, there are quite a few instances though where you know the focus will be on someone being able to shift a fair amount of weight, and you you will put those larger loading movements earlier on. You know, and you won't necessarily worry about it. Yeah, if you're planning on powerlifting, ignore what we've just said. <laughs> it might be from a hypertrophy perspective. There might, you know, you, I mean, I know Cal takes this approach where he goes in, he has this kind of bigger movements that he'll get done first because he and he doesn't think like per, personally from my experience that'll only work for a short period of time yeah go yeah. in with that approach and when i say short period of time i mean 10 years five to ten years of doing that and you'll be fine <laughs> going in and you've got okay i've got to maximally load the hat squat first or the squat or rack pull or deadlift or rdl or whatever it is but the longer you stay in the game or the longer you want to stay in the game in terms of being able to have a decent physique, the more you've got to maybe have an approach as, okay, I need to think about how I'm programmed stuff. I can see the benefits of doing that movement. I can see the benefits of my body hand and load. But whether I put that first, second or third doesn't matter so much. And if it's a case of my body's slightly warmer, it's, it's worked better in that range, I know more what's available. And actually, I'm going to handle less load because it's second or third from a longevity point of view, I see massive benefits from that, from the type of clientele that generally I work with who are not in their teenagers, not maybe early 20s, maybe late 20s, 30s, um, who've been in the game for a while. We can't continue to maximally load them type of movements. Yeah, and it, it's the, um, the, 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 I, we stuttering away here. Um, <laughs> Good point, man. <laughs> Um, we, we went through this on the portal, um, like this guy, Ralph Carpinelli, who's, you know, a guy I've recently discovered has written some pretty cool stuff in, in the areas of hypertrophy and, and, you know, he's done a quite a cool critical commentary on all these different views with, you know, when you're an experienced trainee, what, what does the research actually seem to say in all these different areas? And one of the things in like the exercise order, um, segment of this commentary was that there's actually no evidence that it affects hypertrophic outcomes in any way so when people are saying oh you should do this movement at this order because it's better for hypertrophy i would agree that there's no real evidence for that but there is potentially massive implications when it comes to like joint integrity joint health which is the stuff we'd use that for and that's where paying attention to like doing exercises in appropriate order um you know loading a particular range first may be a good shout but at the end of the day you know, tissues don't know, um, you know, that you've done a leg extension or a leg press or something like that. You know, you're quite aware of that. It's aware of the force that's been put through and we can put that force through, through it in a more, you know, precise, accurate way or we can do it on a more of a multi-jointed scenario and like a leg press or a hack squat or a barbell squat or something like that. Um, and the, the different things that the body's exposed to with that, with those different stimuli, um, you know, massively come into play and then that, and, you know, when we're dealing with these movements where there's higher potential for joint force, there's more to juggle, you know, when we've got a lot of fatigue going on, this, the, the order we place exercises in potentially has a massive um, 
like carries a massive importance and that's what the st- that's basically how we'd approach that so i wouldn't ever really and I'd, i don't know if you guys agree like when i've put things in a particular order it's not really been in a within an idea like a mindset of this is better for hypertrophy it's this will be better because it will be potentially safer for the joints um it will be easier for them to you know deal with the potential juggle if i take them you know at this point in the session where they're quite fatigued we'll pick a movement where there's there's less for them to have to coordinate and they're in a kind of more guided path of motions you know seated environment potentially whatever it is that potentially translates to more like hypertrophy long in the long run but it more likely translates to that person's not going to be so fucked up in a few years (laughs) yeah it's taken more of a, a mechanical approach to programming um another way to maybe try and think about stuff if you've got movements where you can get more of a say a full spectrum load um that may be good to program early on mm-hmm. so like an example for maybe back or something like that is a, a pullover machine like the range we can get through on a pullover machine we're probably not going to get that it's hard to get that through other movements so we might program that early on because of the range we're going through the weight stat's going to move a huge amount. So there's going to be a huge amount of inertia to deal with. There's going to be a huge amount of skill requirement around the shoulder, around the scapula, around the ability to hold position. So something like that, I personally would program early on compared to maybe a row, if we've got a chest-supported row or even compared to a pull-down um, or something. So like that would be my thing. Was like I'd pull, put something that works through a bigger range, potentially earlier on, um, that maybe requires higher skill requirements, um, potentially, but still can keep the joint in a good place. And then another way, if we are going to program that that hack squat or that type of movement, I'm definitely probably going to have a consideration for speed, consideration for tempo, consideration for profile. So all these other things, I'm not saying we can't put that first. We definitely can, but we've got to have a consideration for all the other aspects of that exercise rather than just jumping in and trying to get a max load on it. Um, so that's the thing is just looking at everything within the plan. And if we can create a movement that creates an optimal challenge through the length and mid and short, then we're on the money. That's perfect. Rather than thinking maybe like another example is a chest exercise. So rather than thinking of barbell bench press, if we've got a converging path machine press that gives us the same length in the start position, but we can get to a shorter end range and still have potentially a bit of a load, a bit of torque requirements in that end range because of the line of force from the machine, then we're going to get so much more from that. So that parallel path barbell <laughs> press, I'm going to put later on in the move in the set through when they're working through that mid to lengthen range where something maybe like the converging path chest press or so that Cybex Eagle chest press or something like that. I'm going to go and put that first or early on because it's going to get more range out of it. Um, for one on that cybex eagle if, if we've got that one going because that's that dual axis possibility there allows you to do two different things within that one you might do pushing it and squeezing it properly converging together on the first couple of sets then take that thing without bothering to try and drive that and then depends on how much stuff you've got into your kind of thing but it's the same idea that james is yeah. is going through here is that, and that, what's going on? yeah oh, hey, man. you go ahead do the thing yeah 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 <laughs> I'll go, whatever. You've never looked more like you're from Dublin. Like, even on a separate outlet, I'm going to take it off. It's, like it's, a, it's a hat, a cap, a top. Anyone that's from Dublin would know where that is. It's a bit of a shell. Anyway, <laughs> so even just from like a basic progression standpoint, even myself, like, um, 
if you're somebody who can get kind of like strong beyond normality, so like again, like I would be somebody who's relatively strong on certain movements to a point where there's only so right, much. Get a load of this guy. There's not so much progression that he can eat. Guys, have you there. heard how strong Ross is? There's only so much progression that he can eat out on these movements before it nearly becomes counterproductive to even add any more load. So if I'm getting to a point where this is exercising this first, I'm just constantly eking out these absolutely minutiae of progressions, if any. It nearly makes more sense to have a look at your program and where some people may go, and I have done in the past with some people, depending on the individual, but what a lot of people will do is like, okay, cool, I'll just try and add like a fucking like a drop set or some kind of rest pause or something. But like that often does end up becoming counterproductive because it just eats into your overall recovery capacity. So you're trying to do more when there's other means where you can do more, it's just might have to call that objectively on paper, you may end up doing less or moving less. So changing that exercise order around that you're still doing similar exercises, if not the same exercises, but in and on order that it's allowing for a certain level of not so much fatigue, but work to a built up to a point where there's no way you're going to be able to handle that same load. But that does not mean that those tissues aren't going to be exposed to a force that is sufficient enough for you to continue to move forward. You just may not have the same net load on the bar or on the machine or so on and so forth. You know, it's understanding how we can manipulate these things to, yeah, okay, make you move a little bit less, but potentially make you take, grow a little bit more. Yeah, that, and that's the thing of like, if someone, and it, it, psychologically it will have the effect of if someone was previously doing, you know, going to the gym, hack squatting first, doing some other stuff and then finishing on leg extension, they would typically hack squat six plates aside and they'd do leg extension with, you know, hot like two thirds of the stack and then they turned that round and went leg extension first and hack squat and they ended up leg extending the full stack and then they came to the hack squat and they can only do four plates aside like psychologically they might think oh i'm not i'm getting less out of that like the hack squat's the bigger movement i'm therefore getting less hydro it's like you know the the relative load that's been placed through the tissue is probably pretty similar throughout the session you're just dealing with more fatigue like, and no change. that's that's the thing that I've had time and time again. I'm sure you guys have, and like with clients that come to us, oh, but why have you not put that hack spot first? I'm used to doing this because it's their ego is there. So scratch your ego, get rid of that, forget the numbers that you used to do. Um, and even if we put it in second, you can still progress that. You can still work up to it, yeah. but it's just everyone's ego that's getting in their way because they've got to do certain numbers that they've always done. I was there for 10 years of training. Had to bench press X amount, had to squat X amount, had to deadlift X amount. Couldn't put them second because it compromised the amount of load I do. You mean people get emotionally attached to numbers and exercises. <laughs> uh, that can be one of that can be such a good tactic. It's something I've used with myself of when I standardly max out every machine I ever go on. <laughs> <laughs> no, the... I've got Ross back in the room. <laughs> no, when I. Uh, where like if I get to the point where I've like got a movement early on in the session that maybe fits this type of description, if it's like a bigger movement, and it's getting to the point where it's hard to then eke out strength progressions, a really easy tactic is to move it later in the session and accept that there's going to be a, st- a strength drop, but there's actually going to be more room to progress it back up as you as you you know over the course of the following months because you're not going to be approaching that, um, you know you're going to be approaching it in a completely different state, um, and um, yeah. I think that's uh, something people need to do. It's like, how much force do I need to max out my own force production capacity right now, which is adjusted through the session due to fatigue and stuff? It's like, well, for hypertrophy, that's really what we're kind of chasing. We're not chasing the performance on the hack squat. You're not competing in the hack squat Olympics because that's not a thing. Uh, And so, you know, unless we are strength athletes in a strength thing that does that move, like, 
you don't put the cart before the horse. And, and it's also and on that same point, like what's a really, really good thing that we want if we're um, training for hypertrophy? Fatigue. Um, so why is why are people worried about that? Like, oh yeah, if I do this later on, I'll be really fatigued. I won't perform as well. It's like fatigue's kind of why you're doing it. Like we're not, we aren't trying. Like Paul just said, we're not trying to. Like, <laughs> like obviously, peeing is pretty good for a psychological perspective, but there's also quite a lot of evidence that shows doesn't really fucking matter to a, to a degree. Um, and like with with having that. hypertrophy, aren't that correlated? <laughs> um, but anyway. Yeah, with having that fatigue in mind as well, if we go and put that hack squat or sort of something that's got some sort of load going through the spine, if we go and put that first and we try and maximally fatigue on that, is there going to be some knock-on effect that the lower back's tightened up a little bit? So that in the back of our mind is going to affect what we do on the leg extension. That's going to have that knock-on effect. So we can't just think about programming isolation. We have to think about programming what that effect that's having for the B, C, D, E exercises, all the ones after that. But then as well, we've got to think about programming in terms of, okay, what are you doing tomorrow? What have you done the day before? Like everything has to come in as a whole rather than just that number for that first set on the hat squat that you've got to beat. Like how much of an effect is that going to have peripherally throughout the whole body on everything? How much of an effect is that going to have on your ability to perform throughout the rest of the week? Mm-hmm. Can you still get the same hypertrophy response from putting it as a CX size, but maybe you don't get the same fatigue Um sort of everywhere else but the target muscle in terms of knee extension wise yeah and there, there can be like i was to say b- between us i'm sure we can come up with some good arguments to put these bigger movements first like i know beginner client not much skill and you're trying to get them to learn you know some of these movements it might pay to have them perform them when they're not overly fatigued because we know if someone goes through a session they not only accumulate fatigue within the tissue but within their central nervous system it's harder for them to actually like do things you know we, we get tired and the central nervous system becomes crap at sending signals to tissues because that's just how it works um central fatigue peripheral fatigue um so if we have someone who's trying to learn something um you know and they, we know we might not want to push the intensity too high but we might get them to do some of the bigger movements earlier on and then when you know put them in these kind of more supportive environments later on and you know so it's very context dependent individual dependent and goal dependent always comes back to that um but there's tons of stuff you can do with it um wait next question um no um no yeah (laughs) (laughs) no um but i mean there's more we can we can say on that if people have further questions on that you know drop them in the comments drop them in our dms and we can kind of maybe do another podcast just on that topic because it's a big one like the whole idea of how do we appropriately load movements? I mean, we're going to do stuff on the, we have done stuff on the board on that and we're going to do a bit more on it, but um, it's a big topic. Um, the yeah, banding. So last question was, and for the people that did ask other questions, by the way, we've just stockpiled a legs. There were some awesome ones that we're going to go through probably next week. And then we go after and some terrible ones. You guys should really have a world for yourselves. <laughs> uh, yeah, there really weren't, there weren't any bad questions. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, um, the actual question itself was banded leg extension seem to be the in thing at the moment. What are your thoughts, gents? Um, and then someone else did ask about the benefits of banding, I believe as well. Did they not? Was yeah. That, yeah. Is that yeah. um, Thank you, James. So, well, first I'll go benefits of banding because I think always that potentially needs to come in before leg extension. 
Yeah. Um, the preface to this is we've done loads of this on the portal. So, yeah. <laughs> so for, for me, initially, when we're looking at banding, we've got to look at what we're trying to do. Um, generally, people are going to try and adjust their profile. Lift more weight. Yeah. Good for the ground. <laughs> Uh, so they're trying to adjust their profile and what used to be uh say on a hack squat people would bottom band to adjust the profile and they'd learn the skill of controlling down they'd learn the skill of having to pause the bottom and push through but now we're seeing it's because everyone hears this funky term inertia um everyone top bands it uh but they don't actually know why they're doing it and they just end up adding more weight on so they just rub their ego to get more weight on so Getting back to my point is that generally we'd add a band to change the profile, whether that's top band, whether that's bottom band, whatever that may be. Um, another reason why we could use a band is to adjust the inertial effects. So whether that's increase it, whether that's decrease it. Um, and then the third reason potentially is maybe to increase magnitude, increase maybe the load on there if the machine maybe doesn't go heavy enough. We could use a band rather than use a, a gym pin or extra weight on the machine. We could use a band to adjust load. But before we even think of them, we've got to understand that the first priority is alignment, path of motion, um, ability to hold a stable position, skill. Have we ticked all them boxes before we're thinking about creating this optimal profile? Have we ticked the box of making sure they can control that eccentric, get a pause in the bottom, and then push through before we think, oh, we need to reduce the inertial effects. No, can they just control the movement? Can they have a four seconds on the way down? I'm going to answer this, these questions on behalf of every gym bro out there. No. <laughs> so personally, I was like, forget the bands for a bit for the majority of clients, get them to work on their control, get them to stabilize and control the path of motion, get them to be aware of the alignment, positioning, skill, etc. And then as a progression, we know it's there when we want to adjust the profile when we maybe want to increase the inertia. It's not always a bad thing, but we want to do that. Um, and then if it gets to a point where you get on the leg extension and you've maxed it out and you need to add more load, then putting a band on the leg extension to add more load is not a bad thing at all. Uh, we've just got to be aware of, that, of the effect that band has and depend on its position, depend on the leg extension, or depend on how much magnitude that will actually increase um because some won't be massive as you get to that top position because that band may near or get close to the point of rotation of the machine um so we can't necessarily say what effect that's directly going to have because that will completely depend on the machine but it's not a bad thing at all if the individual's got the skill to control it knowing that that band is whipping that weight back down so they want to fly back down so they've got to have the control there um, and not just let that weight drop I'll say an example of when the band would get close to the axis and kind of lose its its effect would be the uh, you did a post with doing the cybex lateral, did you not? Yeah, 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 yeah. A while ago, yeah. Uh, but I know that's on James's Instagram and stuff. But yeah. yeah. So, like, if anyone wants to try and think about that, then the ideal thing would be to have a, a longer band that's already stretched out. So the increase in magnitude on the band isn't going to be that much compared to the redu reduction in moment arm. So if you go for a shorter band that in stretches a fair bit and gets close to potentially its last limit as it goes through and there's not much stretch in the start position, then we're going to get a massive potentially increase um, in torque as we go through the leg extension, which may or may not be the goal. Um, but <laughs> ideally choosing a longer band potentially for that example may be better. There's definitely a, f a few goals that would require you to make it harder at the top of a leg extension, but there's probably they're less common. 
they'd be more like in my opinion they'd be more like injury related to be honest um but yeah all that stuff. I mean, he covered basically everything worth saying there, mate. So I've got nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Luke's got something to add. He always has. Yeah, I mean, like the, I, I could just add a really opinionated view on why it's fucking pointless to ban the leg extension. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, but no, I, uh, most I, people, it is pointless to ban the leg extension. They haven't finished the stack yet. That's only my point. There is, make sure you're strong enough. Yeah. The, the view is like, I know there is a view that circulates that says the leg extension is. Apparently, our only opportunity to load the quads in a really shortened position, all four quads, um, which is you know has some truth to it, maybe. Um, but we're also in a hip flex knee extended position at the top of most leg presses, and if we set the profile up accordingly on that, we may be able to do something there as well. Um, but uh, but anyway, on the uh, leg extension, people have that view, and then I, I think the they tag onto that therefore it's the hardest in that top position because that's our only opportunity to train it there. I, I disagree. Um, and I think most people that study mechanics to any depth would also agree. Um, I think like even with, with that, that in mind as well, most leg extensions are, <laughs> even if they've got some form of drop-off, they're not the required drop-off that's needed. Like the drop-off we get in our strength producing capabilities in the top of leg extension is potentially huge. Like anywhere from 30% upwards to 35, 40, 45%, depending on the individual. Yes. Whereas a machine may only have 15, 10, 15, 12, whatever it is, some small amount of change in magnitude through the, through the range. So it, a machine still is heavier in the top position proportionally to what we can, strength-wise, what we can produce. Mm. And we get um, pretty damn weak in, uh, I mean, it's it's not maybe as weak as what we'd see if you know people were looking at like length tension relationship with a single you know like a single sarcomere and stuff like that. But we we do get weak from a length tension perspective in terms of how much force we can produce within the sarcomeres of the tissue within the muscle fibers. Like our, our capacity to produce force drops mass like pretty massively as we get into that short position. There is evidence and we know that's the case actually that the internal moment arm of the quad so people that know that language does actually increase as we get into that top position but it, that that one component doesn't mean that we're stronger there i think some people have used that argument suggest it is um well that does happen we are generally mechanically weaker in that position the, in, the increase in internal moment arm is potentially to compensate for that weakness if anything um so it's kind of going oh yeah i'll give this muscle a bit more efficiency because actually mechanically like with like in terms of what's happening from a uh, cross bridging perspective i'm losing quite you know, a, a decent like any ability to kind of generate force here so i can make it a bit more efficient based on other means um but yeah, using that stuff as an argument, like that's not enough to warrant banning it. And there's quite a lot of evidence. I mean, people have measured it in quite a few instances now that force output just drops. So you're not really, and but like James said, by potentially quite a lot. Um, so I wouldn't. If you guys aren't sure of that, get on your leg extension and see if you can just hold that top position when you don't launch it into there. Yeah. <laughs> but, mm, nope, it's going to lose. Um, and yeah, you can rig stuff up if you, you know, you can use dynamometers or like if you, if you have that stuff available, you can buy crane scales, which are like big fishing scales. that got like 300 kilos of force and you can use that as a dynamometer. I mean, Paul and I did in the video recently, you can measure your output. Although these... we used it with seven kilos. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, you could, you, you know, if you, you could maybe if you knew what you were doing, measure your output in these conditions, or you can just take a word for it. <laughs> I would say don't take a word for it, go and investigate for yourself, but you'll probably come to the same conclusion that you are weaker um, mechanically at the top of the leg extension. So banding it for the purpose of making the exercise harder there doesn't make much sense. Um, we, we say that you can just see it practically every single day in the gym. What does everyone do on the leg extension? They use momentum to get it going, and then you see the way you get to the top. They think about contracting, but if they do, it's dropped an inch or two, and then there might be a contraction, then there might be a pause, yeah. and then they go back down. So like visibly, we can see it happen. Also, how we fatigue. When people fatigue on leg extension, they don't lose... The strength down here they stop no one loses the mid-range <laughs> you don't stop being able to move it you stop being able to get it to the top because it's hardest to get there um so why you know you if we know that's where it's going to be quicker then just don't just kind of go with what yeah, i mean don't tr don't not modify it at all because like i said some machines don't drop off enough but the the more likely modification you have to make is getting it to drop off a bit more not putting a band on it if I'm training someone in the gym, I manually resist or assist this way before I'd ever think about banding it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good um, to get a little bicep pump when you're training clients. So. <laughs> um, yeah. Stop curling all of my leg extensions. <laughs> That's my workout now. Um, cool. I mean, that probably answers that one, doesn't it? I think so. Any, uh, any news in the Tolkien world, Ross? Yeah. <laughs> what was that app? Let's we talk about this pretty cool app that people might want to hear. Oh, about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So anyone who's into Lord of the Rings uh, and into it as much as I am, which is probably nobody, um, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. He's going to take a personal challenge. There's a walk. There's a walk to Mordor app, basically where you can track your steps and activity right up to the point where you've walked the equivalent that Sam and Frodo did from the Shire all the way to Mount Doom. And um, how far so, is that, Ross? One thousand nine hundred and thirty-two miles. Um, no, actually, that's, that's only just occurred to me this instant that they have all these awesome names in in Lord of the Rings, and it's uh, like mythical names. And then it's like Mount Doom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Sam, it's like he just ran out of ideas. Like Maradour, Maradour. That is a good point, actually. All of the rest are like super sexy sounding stuff. Now, <laughs> like our school. That's probably the only one that kind of just sounds like, you know, it's like Mount Doom. This is a very scary place. He may as well have called it just Mount Bad. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's not like, and it's not like everywhere else in, or like around, like, or even the kind of evil places within Tolkien's Law, like they have those kind of names. Like it's all like Gundabad and Udun and yeah, like Marador. He invented languages and then called it the childish, the mm. most childish name he could have thought of for the mountain. It's like he asked his daughter or something, what should we call the bad mountain? Mount Doom. Okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> Maybe he did. He was wondering, going, shit. So good, though. <laughs> I promised her I'd actually call it this. Fuck's sake. Oh, but no, so there, yeah, that that app is pretty cool. I mean, what well, where walk to Buckland today? I was, I was, no, I was going to use it, but I was like, you know, this is going to keep when I do end up prepping again. This is going to keep me so occupied. So I'm yeah, going to wait until then. I think a challenge in that is you have to walk the equivalent of walking to Mordor. That would be so. That, that would be quite a good thing as a coach, where you could say, "I get this app, you know, by ne next check next check in, I want you to have got to to breathe." Um, I did have one client that she's not with me anymore, and I was like, "Just go and tell me where you've gotten to every week, and I'll be able to tell her where you've gone." <laughs> to be fair, if you walk five miles a day, it still takes you three hundred and eighty-five days <laughs> to yeah, walk right. to Mordor. 
Yeah, I'll start, I'll start doing, I'll start. To... It's a long prep. <laughs> comparable to the, how long it took them in the book, isn't it? It takes them just over a year. Sorry, it does take them about a year, but 13 months to get there and back, though. There and back? Oh, so they do quite, they do what, 10 miles a day? Let's go. It's a long prep. Uh... But they say <laughs> they come back on horses, so they take the piss. Yeah, well, horses and eagles. James right now is just shaking his head, just like, fuck. He's got no input in this conversation. <laughs> there he is. I'm back in one of these. It's on my desk. That's a mighty switch of losers. Hey, <laughs> that, mate. That's awesome. Embrace the uh, embrace the geek. Like life's no about enjoying these things. It's, you know, what are they, all those quotes about? You know, when you forget how to be a child, life ends or whatever. You know. Yeah. When you say all those quotes, there's some good quotes. <laughs> you mean that specific one you forgot and just went with that. Hogan's <laughs> quotes. I'll quote. heavily paraphrase that quote as well. But basically, embracing childish things. Not all those who mumble and get confused are lost, as Tolkien once said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm incredibly gullible, so I'm going to go and look that up in a second. But no, um, sweet. So for yeah, for the questions we didn't get answered, thank you for the people that sent them in. Um, we will probably be getting to those next week. And we also uh, enjoy Lord of the Rings slash Marvel slash Star Wars related questions. Yeah, really, really geeky Marvel. questions in general. I'm, I'm, I'm being well, I mean, James doesn't, but I'm quite interested to see if we can have more of these conversations and just watch him get uncomfortable sitting there. <laughs> anyway, um, but no. Until next time, thank you guys um, and thank you for listening everyone. Thank you for listening to the Muscle Mentors podcast. Just a quick shout out to our sponsors who support the channel and everything we do in the realms of education and coaching within the industry. Firstly, our original sponsor, Supplement Needs. They've been with us from the start. If you're seeking the highest quality supplements on the market, particularly organ support and health orientated products, you can use code MUSCLEMENTORS at checkout for 10% off your order. Precision Prep, our recently introduced food preparation partner, delivering the finest quality meal prep across the UK, featuring their new Pro Prep range, a concept closely developed with us to solve an issue we see day to day with time limitations and nutritional compromise. If you're seeking the highest quality nutrition delivered to your door for the best price, look no further. Use code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for 15% off your first order and 10% thereafter. And lastly, RAR Optics, the highest grade blue, lock, blue light blocking glasses on the market with the slickest style. In a world filled with artificial light, particularly those with high screen time, I can certainly say I'm one of them. These can be a real game changer for sleep quality and recovery, something we use personally on a day-to-day -day basis. Grab yourself a pair by using code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for money off all orders. Once again, thank you for your continued support. Until next time.